Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of series three of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'm Ed Kemp and I'm delighted you could join me as we discuss athlete transition to life after sport. My guest today is newly appointed Hawthorne Football Club coach Sam Mitchell. Sam had an incredible on-field career with the Hawks after initially being overlooked at the 2000 AFL draft. A successful season with the Box Hill Hawks in 2001, however, saw him selected by Hawthorne at pick number 36 in the 2001 draft. And to say it was a smart move by Hawthorne's recruiting team is an understatement. Sam's career highlights include winner of the 2003 AFL Rising Star Award, five-time Hawthorne Best and Fairest winner, four-time Hawthorne Premiership player including captaining the Hawks to the 2008 flag, a three-time All-Australian, and he also won the 2012 Brownlow Medal. In what was at the time a shock move, Sam transferred to the West Coast Eagles at the end of the 2016 season, and after playing 2017 in the West, almost as an on-field coach, he retired and joined the West Coast Eagles coaching panel in 2018, the year the Eagles won the flag. It feels like success simply follows Sam, doesn't it? A quick glance at Sam's playing resume could lead us to believe he was a born superstar. The truth, however, is very different. Sam's story is one of hard work, persistence, and not taking no for an answer. Sam holds one of just 18 AFL senior coaching positions, and I'm excited to hear his perspectives on preparing for life after sport. Please enjoy my conversation with Sam Mitchell. Sam, it's great to have you joining the Wide Open Road podcast today. And reflecting back to when you were playing football, was preparing for life after sport a focus for players? And describe how this sort of aspect of footy may have changed over the course of your time in the game. Yeah, I probably saw a couple of iterations of it, really. Firstly, when I got to the club, I was studying engineering and a lot of the practical work was done on one day and then all the other subjects were based off the practical work and I couldn't do I couldn't do that. And there was this, we want you to study, we want you to do other things, but they probably didn't make it too easy for you to do it, although they wanted you to. It really had to fit in with the AFL program. Then I went through a period where there was a lot of focus on it, a lot more uh, was made a lot easier. And then probably saw that all again. So I made another period where it was reasonably difficult and then a period where it was worked out a bit better. So saw a couple of iterations of it. Um, I always thought that I did a lot, you know, trying to prepare for the end, but it probably wasn't until I got a little bit older. I always did something outside of footy, you know, some sort of study. Um, but it wasn't until I was, you know, in my mid to late 20s that I really started to knuckle down and, and focus on getting some things achieved off the field. Um, strangely enough, I ended up playing better footy around that time too. So It's interesting you say that because a fellow that you know very well, David Parkin, was a guest on this podcast a couple of series ago and he's very big on, and I'm sure you're aware of this, on players having balance between what they do on the field and what they do off the field and that often... Um, he uses the example of Andrew Mackay, who, who was studying veterinary science at one stage and was travelling between, I think, Melbourne and Adelaide to study, and he had what David would say would probably be a career-best season when he was doing all of that. And if you think about the guys that you played with and maybe even the guys that you played against that you potentially had a, a sort of an off-field relationship with, what were the, the discussions, if any, about as you were sort of moving through your career about what they might do when they finished? Was, was that sort of something that players spoke about? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, guys, if you think about being an AFL footballer, it's a strange world because you end up with a job which, although it's very, very difficult and it's a it's a difficult job to have, there's a lot of pressures, it doesn't take all of your time. If you compare yourself to the hard-working people of your own age as a 22, 23-year-old, you're not working, you know, 60-hour weeks. You're very, very fatigued during other parts of your life due to the training 
but you do have more time. And as a general rule, the reality is that you have more money than most people too. And that's a difficult mix to stay motivated to achieve outside because a lot of people work so that they can live. But we already, as an actor football, you can already live the lifestyle that you would like to. So when other people have a side hustle or they're working extra hours or they're putting in that extra work, that's increasing their lifestyle. And they're able to do things that they would like because of that. Whereas as an AFL football, you don't have that. You can already do whatever you like. And that's a really difficult motivation for those of us who are motivated by work to do work to be able to free up time in your life. You already have that. So when you're talking about it, it's about how can you, you know, make a few extra dollars. What are you doing on the side? I met this guy and he's into shares and it's all about what's easy. It's an easy way to do things. And especially when I was younger, it was sort of peer pressure to have some sort of thing going on in the side which didn't take up a lot of your time but you had the ability to make some more money. And as I got older, there became a peer pressure to actually have something to fall back on and it was really interesting. The whole networking scene sort of came in when I was 25, 26 and I'm not sure if you would view networking as a positive or a dirty word but the idea of it, you know, I always found I had five or six people that were really close with and that were fantastic mentors for me. And I knew if I ever got myself into trouble that I would have people that would help me and would help me get out of that rut. I always felt a bit guilty because I had other friends who had a hundred people that they knew and they spoke to and they chatted with, but potentially they didn't have anyone that would actually mentor them and help them. And so it's horses for courses. You have to do what you want to do, but certainly as a player, you're always trying to extend yourself, whether that was, your network, whether it was your learning and your understanding, you're always trying to extend yourself and you certainly talk to each other about what that looked like, what your interests were. And by the end of my career, there was a lot of positive peer pressure where if guys weren't doing anything outside of sport, they were not criticised, but it was like, okay, what are you doing? What are you going to do when you finish? Like, you need to start doing something. Um, And that positive peer pressure was a really good change in the culture of certainly of my club. And I mean, I think that's... You know, you'd argue whether it's on the field or off the field, the peer pressure is probably the one that that everybody takes the most notice of when it comes to that sort of thing. And what you mentioned before about, you know, going out there and networking, I mean, you know, depending on how you look at it, networking can be pretty ordinary. But if you do it in the right way and you focus on giving and as a result you'll get something back as well, I think that's really helpful. But the currency of AFL players is something which fascinates me in the sense that when you're in that bubble, as you talk about it, as playing – and there's coterie group members, there's board members, there's supporters who have got influence in all sorts of different aspects of life and business. They're willing to help you. And you know, let's talk about some mentors. I mean, you we don't need to name names, but but clearly over the course of your career, you valued the fact that of having someone off the field unrelated to Hawthorne or unrelated to the West Coast was really important in probably providing you some perspective, but also some thoughts around what you might do when you finish. They didn't necessarily need to be unrelated to the club, but they certainly try to be unrelated to the on-field. So you mentioned David Parkin before, and he was an example where he actually would help me on-field, but he always had an interest in what I was doing outside of, of football. Another guy who really helped me was Andrew Kay. He was on the board of Hawthorne for a long period of time. He was a, a brain surgeon of all types, but Hawthorne, basically every player was could catch up with him for a coffee. And he would see if he could help them with whatever they wanted to achieve off-field. And I just really hit it off with him, I guess, and we became friends and he was an older guy. Every time I saw him after that, he would say, how are you going? How's your study? 
And most people ask about it and then you say, yeah, good. And then they move on to the next topic. And he would say, what subject are you doing? How many subjects? Do you think you could do another one? How many hours are you spending on it? When are you spending that time on it? How are you going with it? What marks are you getting? And I actually always felt, every time I saw him, and when I was studying and just it was getting hard, I always thought about him and thought, I know I'm going to run into Professor K and he's going to ask me and I'm going to have to have good answers. I can't tell him I'm only just passing or I can't tell him I'm only getting a credit. I can't tell him I'm only doing one subject. And it was almost like he positive peer pressured me into achieving a little bit more. And so guys like that are huge was a huge impact on me. Um, later on in my career, you know, Ed Seal, who was the president of Box Hill and, you know, just had that life view that potentially I didn't have. He'd run a big business and, you know, was able to just talk to me about, you know, really as a footballer, you spend a lot of time in the AFL bubble where you have a, a small group, you get in your car, you drive to a professional facility, you have people wait on your hand and foot, you work hard, but then when you come off, you get massage and treatment and everyone treats you like you're a special kind of person. And once your career finishes, that ends pretty quickly and you want to be well prepared for that. So having people that you have a strong enough relationship with and that have strong enough experiences to help guide you through that post-career change is really important because my teammates over the journey have really struggled with that aspect, particularly when the end comes quicker than they might have expected. And that's a really interesting segue into the next part of this conversation, which is about the challenges that people go through, whether it's an AFL footballer or any professional sports person, men or woman, you know, when retirement comes, there'll be people who are prepared and they'll simply just move on and then there'll be players and individuals and athletes that haven't. And, I mean, in your experience and just from seeing what you've observed over the course of your time in footy, what do you think are some of the things that people really struggle with when they actually do retire? It's a great question. I mean, if you think about the life of the AFL football, you walk down the street and people recognise you, talk to you, you go to a hospital and you're doing something for people and you're handing out sign jumpers to little kids and you go to a school and you're running a footy clinic for all these people. So in a lot of instances, you're the important person in the room and you can do a lot of good in that space and we encourage our players to do a lot of good. But by the same token, it is a challenge because... When your career's over, you know, depending on your profile, maybe the day your career finishes, but certainly for most of us, 12 months after your career's finished, you know, I run into 10-year-old kids now and they've got no idea that I played. And so guys who finish their career, all of a sudden they go from being the person getting asked for signatures, which is just a little stroke of the ego, and then all of a sudden you're not that. You're not the most important person in the room. You're an absolutely normalised citizen which is great if you're ready for it. But it's really, really difficult if you have this, I deserve to be the most important person in the room. If you think you deserve that and you think you are the most important person in the room, that's a really difficult thing to come out of. Um, I think when you're signing autographs for little kids who adore you, um, you have to consider the fact that you're not more important than them. And the first time you do it, I'm flattered that you would ask me, but eventually you lose that feeling and that eventually that feeling becomes, of course, you want my signature. And that's a to get out of that and then to not be asked, if you let that become who you are, uh, it's a really difficult thing to, to get out of. And then you spend the rest of your time thinking, why aren't people interested in me? And that can lead to 
you know, self-worth issues, uh, mental health issues. It's a being ready for what the future holds while you're playing. And that's the interesting thing for me, Sam. I mean, you know, let's just say the average AFL player, if they play for an extended period of time, are probably going to retire from somewhere between 30 to 34, 35 years of age. So you've still... You, you've st- <laughs> that's, that's very generous. The average career finishes at about 22, actually. If you think about it from the perspective of your peer group and the guys that you play with, you all played a lot of, a lot of games of footy, and so you're probably retiring on the, the other side of 30, but you've still got at least 50 years on the planet and you need to be productive and you need to be engaged and, and doing something that's going to interest you for a fair period of time because, as I understand it, there aren't too many AFL players that can retire on the earnings that they've made over the course of their career. And so if you think about some of the things that maybe the AFL Players Association, the clubs that you've played with, and obviously Hawthorne being the main one, I mean, what were some of the things that they did to support and encourage their players to get prepared for when the, the inevitable is going to happen, they're going to finish playing footy? <laughs> the quote I can't help but think of and reference is... I wish I knew then what I know now because when I was 20 and I'd just come into the system and I had the AFLPA talking to me about life after footy, I had the club telling me to study and do something outside of footy, footy doesn't last forever, the average career is four to five years, you've got to have other interests, but I was 20 years old and all I wanted to do was play footy. I had no interest in life after footy. It's a bit like when I was growing up, the idea of sunscreen was, I'm 16, I'm not getting cancer, I think, whatever about getting sunburn, it'll peel off, it'll be fine, I just want to look better. And that seems so ridiculous now. And fortunately, I think that generation now understand that sunscreen's important. And what we try to do with every generation of footballers is bring them in and say, your career will end. You will get sacked from this job. Hardly anyone goes out on their own terms, almost no one. So you will get sacked from this at some point and you will have another 50 years of life. What are you going to do now to achieve it? Now, the AFLPA, the clubs, the AFL itself, we do an enormous amount to try to get players to understand that. But really all you're doing is planting seeds and then it's up to the players to actually commit to that, plus the clubs to create an environment where what I would call they pop, popping the bubble so you're, you're not in the AFL bubble all the time. You know, AFL players shouldn't be above doing the dishes or washing their own jumpers or pumping up their own footies or, or those types of activities which need to be done to make an organisation run. And so a lot of people do a lot of work to try and make it attractive and a bit easier to do things outside of footy. At the end of the day, you can only lead the horse to water. Yeah, spot on. And I mean, I think the interesting thing about that is is that there must be a mechanism, and I've always thought that from the perspective of what I'm trying to do with this podcast and some things that I've been involved with around transition for players and athletes, is there needs to be a cultural shift in Australian sport where there's the athlete as the individual, but then there's the individual as the whole person. And when you're in an amazingly influential position now as the head coach of one of only 18 AFL clubs around if you like, the management of your on-field talent, but also, you know, helping them for what might happen after football. So where does a person like you as a coach of a football club, what's your view on this from the perspective of your job's to succeed on the field and get your players prepared as best they can to perform? But based on what you've just said, it sounds to me like that there's this other part of you thinking, you know, it's actually more than that. 
so this year, 2021, my role was the head of development at Hawthorne as well as coaching Box Hill. So I had a lot of time and effort and energy to put in to this exactly what we're talking about. And really, we spoke about it a lot as there's three elements that we would work on with our first to fourth year players. And we use the story of the house, that your foundation of your house is your football skill. The reason you are here, that's your football skills. And so that gets you in the door and we will continue to harness and train and technical and tactical skills will continue to come along. And the walls of the house were really your life skills, your ability to maintain and grow relationships, your ability to communicate, your ability to change your car tyre, to live a normal human citizen life and not to rely on being an AFL footballer for everything you achieve, to treat people with respect, you know, and to be a good person, to live to your moral values. And then the roof of the house we considered, you know, mental skills. So sort of what I reference regularly was mental skills or mental toughness is the ability to perform close to the top of your talents regardless of competitive circumstance. So as far as mental skills went, we did things like, you know, meditation or mindfulness or you know, gratitude training where as a footballer, you're trying to play well regardless of situation. But you're also trying to live well regardless of situation. If you play well, that shouldn't make you unhappy. Now, you might be grumpy for a couple of hours or a day after you don't have a strong performance or the team loses, but that shouldn't make you an unhappy person. And that separation of this is me, the footballer, and this is me, the person, is a challenging one, particularly for younger players who identify themselves as footballers first and I think the great trap is if you like we all identify as many things I identify myself as an ex-footballer as a coach as a Mitchell as a father as a son as a husband I identify myself as all of those things and to be fair reasonably evenly but if you're a 19 20 21 year old footballer then you recognize yourself as a footballer first And everything else is peripheral. And if you continue to be like that, then football can make you have these huge ups and downs in your mood and your happiness levels in in the way you view the world. And that is a dangerous trap. So for me, balancing football, life skills and mental skills was a real key of what I tried to achieve through our development programs in 2021. And did you notice any potential uptick in some of the players that you were working with, especially those younger guys, when it came to being able to think and get some perspective around the fact that footy isn't everything. And I know that, you know, getting back to what David Parkin always says, is that having that balance can actually really help. And did you see any sort of changes or any uptick in performance because of the, maybe there was pressure taken off them from a mental perspective because they weren't just 100% footy when they were at the club and when they were outside of the club? Well, from an on-field point of view, we saw some benefits where players had a bad quarter, but it didn't mean a bad game which meant from a mental point of view, they were able to say, yeah, I had a bad quarter, but I can still perform. So we saw on-field some mental strength being exude. And then what I would say is in the off-field side, if a player has a lot of trouble with distancing themselves from their sport and you have never spoken about it, they play a bad game, then they're grumpy on Monday, they're still grumpy on Tuesday, and then they come in on Thursday and they're still grumpy and you talk to them and say, hey, football's not life. You're saying that afterwards, it's a you know, a rehab type of thing. But what we were trying to do is, a, is prehab, to talk to them about it beforehand. So when we're talking all pre-season, hey, if you play well, that doesn't mean everything's good. And if you play badly, it doesn't mean everything's bad. You need to, this is my sport and this is me. And they are separate entities. And if you 
talk to them and get them to understand. And if they can get to even half understanding that, then when it happens a month later, six months later, six years later, they recognise that at some point, hey, I played badly, but I'm not bad. And if they can recognise that because of the work you've done, then I think we're doing our job as coaches and mentors of young men. And that's really the key to it, you're coaching and mentoring young men. And would you have a view that part of the job of a football club is to ensure that when the person leaves, whether they've been there for two years, five years, 10 years or 15 years, are better equipped to be, a, if you like, a functioning active member of society than when they walked in the door? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think every club wants better men to walk out than walk in. And we certainly have started to put some things in place. I mean, I've only been in this job for a few weeks. I mean, Clarker was really strong in this space at understanding life skills. Most players walk in at 18. Not, I shouldn't say most. Half the players walk in at 18. We had a player roll his ankle the other day reasonably badly, and he said, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And, you know, for those of us who have had a little bit more life experience, we have a bit of a chuckle about it. But the reality is somewhere between him coming into this club at 18 and leaving at 30, let's say, there's going to be some bad things will happen. There'll be a death. There'll be, you know, a broken heart. There'll be any number of other nasty things happen in our lives. And having the resilience beforehand to deal with that, to try and deal with it, in a prehab rather than a rehab way um, is part of what our role as a football club is. And really, most of us are much, much better people for the trauma that we've been through on our personal lives or in our professional lives. Those are the moments that define us as people. And having the skill set before you get there is one of the benefits of being in a professional environment with an enormous amount of resource is we should be able to prepare our men to deal with trauma and they will always have to do it on their own, inside their own head. But I would hope that my role and our role as an organisation is to give them the skills to have the odds in their favour when those moments come. We spoke last week about a couple of things before today's conversation. You gave me an example of a couple of younger guys, I think from, uh, that were playing with Box Hill, and when, they were, when COVID first hit in 2020, they had to go and buy gym equipment and they had to go and sort themselves out and, and be very proactive and now at least one of them I think may be on the Hawthorne list and suddenly there's this whole infrastructure and ecosystem of people to help, you know, whether it's massage, you know, sports psychs and, you know, physiologists to help you be the best you can be. Do you think that it's almost gone too far in the sense that that provides potentially a perception that is real that I've got all these people around me so I don't necessarily have to be as self-sufficient as I'm probably going to have to be when I leave the game because I'm not going to have people cheering for me when I walk into the office. I'm not going to have someone, you know, get me a coffee to give me a massage, all this sort of thing. I mean, you would have seen this over the course of your career that, you know, almost like every year there was more and more people in the football department to help the players perform. I mean, what's your view on that? Yeah, it's a fascinating idea, isn't it? I mean, if you rewind a long time, you know, 30 years or more, it was a sink or swim. Everyone came into an organisation like Hawthorne and everyone trained hard. And if you were the fittest or the strongest, you survived and you played and great. And I'm sure there was some sort of welfare and a little bit of help. You know, people were supported. But the reality was you just have to make it. And most of us would say that our father's generation is a tougher, on paper, you know, tougher 
generation than ours. And the challenge that we had in a football sense is we went from an amateur sport to a professional sport and we look at, you know, the the NFL or the NBA and we look at these the professionalism of, okay, how can we give these players every chance to be their best? And really putting resource behind them is the obvious answer. So then we put as many resources as we can behind our players to support them in every way. So what that means is we want them to be their best. So let's give them an extra physio. Let's give them extra treatment. Let's give them extra training methods. Let's give them extra programs. Let's give them people to give to stretch their muscles. Let's book their flights for them so they don't feel stressed. Let's change their car tire for them so they don't have to get their hands dirty and hurt their back. Let's put their bins out for them. These are all the things we do to help our players grow. And I don't have an answer for this. But at some point, the players do become reliant on those things and they no longer think for themselves. The best players are the ones who are competing with themselves all the time. How can they be better than themselves yesterday? How can my version of myself tomorrow be better than my version of myself today? But we're actually creating an environment where they don't have to think for themselves. They go into the gym, they're told what to do. They're told every aspect. Do this exercise this many times, have this much rest. And that gives them the best chance to be their best self. But there's some sort of threshold where they no longer have ownership of their own career. And that is where you cross the threshold of we've gone too far in supporting this player. I think my perfect sweet spot, I'm still learning it to be honest, is to have players who are self-sufficient. I'm not sure if any of them will listen to this, but if they do, they'll have a bit of a heads up here. But I'm sure one day this preseason, I'm not going to turn up and none of the coaches will turn up for training. And we'll just see what happens. And there's a if I'm doing a good job and I've done a good job up to that point, hopefully they run their own training, they do their own physical tests, they do their own warm-up the same way they always have, and they're able to take their own session. But it wouldn't surprise me currently if they went, oh, well, let's just do a jog and have a kick around and go home, I suppose. Now, I'm sure that they won't do that. But the idea that they can still have the capability to drive their own career and to get the best out of themselves regardless is a great challenge because there's 30 people in the football department. It's our job to make them their best. And you're actually saying they shouldn't need us. So that's a really difficult... If I'm a great coach, they don't need a coach. So you make yourself obsolete, which would be my goal. It's not a short-term goal, but in the long term, hopefully I can make myself and the rest of our staff reasonably obsolete. Well, I hope for any of the players that you're coaching are listening, well done. You've probably passed your first test by listening to the podcast. Don't tell the other boys when we don't turn up for training. (laughs) I mean, I've done that for the under-16 East Melbourne Knights this year with with the girls' team that I coach, and it's quite funny just watching them go about their business. They're kicking footies and all the rest of it, but they're not doing a hell of a lot else. But uh, they were brilliant uh, young ladies to coach. Now, let's talk about fatherhood for a second because, you know, your book is titled Relentless and it was clear if you think about um, when you got, I suppose you'd call it, overlooked for the 2000 draft and then you played a great season with Box Hill in 2001 and got picked up by the Hawks. The rest is history with respect to what you achieved both individually and collectively. Let's talk about how fatherhood changed your perspective because clearly suddenly it's yourself and your wife and then suddenly you've got twins and you've got other people in your lives that you have to be, um, you've got to look after. I mean, without you, they're in real strife. So tell us a little about that and how that may have changed the way you thought about footy. 
as an athlete, you live a very selfish life. So if you think about being an AFL footballer who's married with no kids, your wife has to eat healthy, go to bed early, not have alcohol, you know, get up early, live, live a lifestyle according to your sport. Most footballers are kind of a bit of weirdos just before a game, so they don't want to do the dishes or they have to vacuum the morning of the game or you know, there's always a little bit of that OCD element in, what, in most what, and, of us. And, and what was your... What was your um... No, no housework. <laughs> no housework. 48 hours for a game, no housework. So I got away with that for quite a few years, but she stamped down on it a bit later on. But you do live this selfish life where you are the most important person in your world. So you go to work and then everyone's there and you're trying to achieve. But you go home and every friend you have is dictated to by you. Your dinner reservations are at 6 instead of 7.30 because you need to go to bed earlier. And you go to bed at halftime of the footy and the TV turns off. If your wife wants to watch the footy, well, she doesn't get to because at halftime it's bedtime and that's what we do. And so you go from being the most important person in your house to being a very, very, very distant third if you have one child. And not because anyone makes you, but because you want to. And so when I reflect on it, you don't recognise yourself as being selfish. Well, I certainly didn't. You just, everyone around you kind of made their life fit into yours because they knew what you did. And then a baby, everyone makes their life fit around the baby because what other choice is there? And so all of a sudden you quickly become the least important person in the room behind your wife and your child. And that was a great centering and grounding environment for me and I found that I learned a great lesson my wife was just got pregnant and she was very very sick and I had to take she woke me up at in the middle of the night and said I think you need to take me to the hospital and so I took her into the hospital we stayed there overnight and she was getting treated I didn't sleep at all and I went home at you know four in the morning I think I got there at one went home at four came back at seven so after you know two or three hours sleep and then I stayed at the hospital all day with her. And then I went and played footy that night. And they said, oh, she's okay. She just needs observation for another 24 hours. And it was because she just got pregnant and some things weren't going as they should. Um, but I went and played that night. And it was, I remember it was a game against Adelaide. And I'd had a horrible preparation, clearly. And every game I'd ever prepared for up to that point was immaculate, perfect. I had exactly three wheat picks. I measured how much milk went in, I measured half a teaspoon of sugar, I went on exactly the same walk, exactly the same route, I went to bed at exactly the same time, I turned the light off exactly the same moment, and then I had this preparation for this game that was up all night, no sleep, anyway, I played really, really well, dominated the game, and then from that point on, I it sounds like a cocky thing to say, but I, I, I sort of, for the first time, I said... I'm not good at footy because I do all this preparation. I'm good at footy because I'm just good at footy. So all I can do is my best, regardless of what that looks like. So my preparation after that became the best preparation I could have. And clearly with my kids all coming reasonably close together, my preparation for games was often less than ideal. But I was preparing the best I could and that gave me the confidence I needed still. So um, certainly the having the life aspect and having a more rounded view of the world. I played almost all of my best footy after I had children. And that's really interesting because it's a huge lesson for any athlete out there that, you know, clearly you had a pretty strong mind. For some athletes, that would just freak them out and they'd run onto the ground going, you know, I haven't ticked this box, I didn't drink this water when I should have and, 
And they're actually, they've almost defeated themselves before they actually run out into the ground, so to speak. But the interesting thing you mentioned is there, which it's about routine. And one of the things which really concerns me about, if you put it from the AFL context, of players transitioning out is that suddenly they've got all this time. As you mentioned before, they were told where to be, what time to be there, what to wear, what to eat, you know, what weights to lift, all that stuff. And then suddenly their life is their own. And that to me must be the single biggest transition. And even for you, did you find that kind of strange where you didn't necessarily have to be at training at seven o'clock to do a, a beep test or to do a, you know, a clip with the, uh, with the clippers for the, for the uh, body fat and all that sort of stuff? I mean, was that something you had to adjust to and found a bit strange? Oh, I'm not a great case study in that sense because I very much lived like that anyway and I always remained a self-sufficient athlete but it is true what you say like I'll give you the example I would have is you know they they say an idle mind is the devil's playground and you know you imagine you finish your AFL career you have money in your pocket and not much to do so you know you're going to fill that void so some people fill that void with exercise and they go and run ultra marathons or some people fill it with gambling some people fill it with alcohol some people fill it with drugs some people fill it with food. You know, as an athlete, you drive past a McDonald's. I couldn't have even told you where the McDonald's drive-thrus were because, well, that's not something you would even ever consider or think about. But all of a sudden, I, I remember... Don't I tell me you, you, you're, eating, you, you're smashing McDonald's burgers every morning there. Well, I should actually say KFC. But you see KFC and you didn't really recognise it as an option for dinner. But all of a sudden, it's an option for you. And I'll tell you, my first run that I went on after my career was over, I remember I got to this little bit of an incline and I'd been running for 10 minutes and I got to the bit of a hill and you know, I started to feel a bit of pain and it dawned on me, I can stop. And the little man in my head, which had become so small after 20 years or 30 years of being an elite athlete, I just said, yeah, I'm going to stop. And I just started walking and it was such a good feeling. It was almost like a drug that I don't have to do this now. There's no motivation for me to tell that little man in my head that says pain is bad to shut up. And to be fair, every day after that, he got a little bit bigger. My passion for pain through exercise was almost non-existent in that instant, despite that being a key driver. I almost loved the pain of exercise my whole career. But when I got to the end and I recognised I didn't have to have that anymore, how do you deal with that? Why would you ever do exercise again? I've only done exercise to be an athlete and to achieve. Now, there's the option to never do exercise again ever. And some people go, yep, that's me. And some people say, well, I never drank alcohol very much and now why wouldn't I? And they drink every day. So there's all these traps to fall into which weren't options for you before because of what you did for a job. And so that's where all these trappings are when your career's over. Yeah, and that's an issue that really does, I think, concern me and should concern every AFL club and the AFL itself. Two quick things before we wrap up. The transferability of skills, the people that I've spoken to in all sorts of sports over the course of the last couple of years, when they start to articulate it, they understand that there is actually quite a significant amount of skills they've developed over the course of an elite sporting career that can be transferred to another environment. And let's call it a corporate environment for the sake of this conversation. 
What are some of the things you think you learnt and your peers learnt about being elite, high performers, all those sorts of things that could very easily be transferred into something else? I mean, my personal thoughts on that is if you become an expert in something, it's much easier to then become an expert in something else because you have learnt the art of expertise. And it's not to say that anyone can do anything, but the concept that if you work on something, you can improve at that thing. Many of us just believe that in our bones and we wouldn't know a way to think differently. But a lot of people don't believe that. They think that they're born, and they might not say this, but they'll think that they're born with the skill set they have and, oh, I could never achieve that or I'm not smart enough for that or I couldn't do this thing. Um, So, for instance, I am terrible with my hands. I can't change light bulbs. I don't know how to undo screws. But I believe that if I committed to doing that and to learning that, that I could. And I could be quite a handy, hands-on person if I made that commitment and drove towards that thing. Now, I've got no interest in that personally. But because I was an expert at one thing, now I have a belief that I can be an expert at something else. And so the transferability of skills to me is around growth mindset and how I believe I have the ability to achieve at something else because I've achieved at this other thing. So you're looking at your own history. So whether you were a fantastic businessman a fantastic negotiator a fantastic sports person if you achieved a lot in one thing i would believe that that makes you very very capable of achieving a lot if you commit to something else because you already have an understanding of what expertise looks like yeah it's a very good answer just on the coaching thing for one second you're going to have to unlearn anything that you learned while you were playing now that you're the coach because clearly self-driven relentless, all of that sort of stuff. Not every player is going to be like that. Not every player is going to be as committed as maybe you were when you played. How does someone like you now moving into the chair deal with that and potentially manage that sort of thing? Unlearning is an interesting concept. I think my number one rule for myself is to remain curious and open-minded. So you're going to talk to me and I'm going to – my first instinct may be to disagree – but I will fight that instinct off and I will listen with both my ears and I will let the information come in and I will assess. doesn't mean I'll agree at the end of the conversation, but I will genuinely listen to your point of view. So to quote a Stephen Covey, seek first to understand, then be understood. So I would genuinely try to understand the other point of view or what a player is going through or what a coach is saying or what an administrator desires or thinks. And I will genuinely try to understand that. And then I will make my decision as the leader of the organisation. So when you say unlearning, it's the willingness to unlearn. Are there things that I think right now which aren't correct? Absolutely. And I need to be open-minded so that I can recognise the things that I believe right now which aren't the best way. The current view of the situation is very rarely the best view of a situation. And so I need to remain open-minded and bring all of these resources around me in, bring all the minds together to execute the best plan. And that's really the role of a leader or the role of a head coach is to achieve synergy between minds to achieve a clear goal. Great way to finish. Now, the last question, ask this of everybody. What would you tell your 20-year-old self about transition to life after sport if you knew then as a 20-year-old what you know now? Uh, Work pays off. Wherever you spend your focus, wherever you spend your energy, uh, you might not know where it's going to pay off, but if you commit effort and work to things, 
that comes back to you. Now, that might be working on your left-hand handball when you're 16 years old, or it could be studying at night when it's the last thing you're thinking about. It might be putting down your phone and reading a book when all you want to do is, you know, scroll Instagram. All of those little sacrifices you make, at the time, they aren't worth it. They suck. They're all little sacrifices that you wish you didn't have to do. But my advice to my younger self is just stick with it. Stay there. Keep working at it because it pays off. Like when you look back over your life, when you look back over periods of your achievement and you wonder why you were able to achieve certain things, it's from those little decisions, all those minor decisions that you got nothing out of at the time, but you got something out of later on. Sam Mitchell, thanks very much for joining us on the Wide Open Road. Very best of luck as you move into the Hawthorne head coaching role and uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'm grateful to each and every one of you for tuning in and for the wonderful support my guests have provided. Their stories are unique, inspiring and powerful and I'm sure people from all walks of life will take a myriad of learnings about transitioning to the next phase of their lives. Whether that be a professional athlete, a soldier or perhaps someone who has decided they needed a change of career in order to find out what they were put on this earth to truly do. As in the words of Mark Twain, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. As the Wide Open Road has evolved, it has become even clearer to me the power of stories. And if you or a friend would like to share your story, please reach out to me at edward-kemp at bigpond.com. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe. I look forward to bringing you more inspiring and uplifting stories in two weeks' time.